Hi there. Um, I'm recording this about five or six minutes before going live to talk about the Corporations Act, the sections 232 and 233. And hopefully in those two or three minutes, my thoughts will be better organized than they are now. Um, But I just wanted to say to you guys that this is the recording uh, from Wednesday, 9 September. Basically, you're just hearing the audio from an Instagram live. And if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, that is at coffee and a case note. I'd be really, really grateful if you'd follow me there. And really, really grateful if you'd sling a review to the podcast. If you give it a star rating or a review, I'd be grateful. But blah, 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 enough of this. Let's get into hearing me chat uh, over a cheeky whiskey or maybe two about corporate oppression. Okay, we are live on... Instagram. Uh, it's a Wednesday night. It's a little bit colder than it's been. G'day, Tanisha. How are you? G'day, keeping up with Kristen. How are you? Oh, g'day, Christine Anita. Oh, Christine, how are you? Oh, this is, oh, okay, g'day, palm tree map. Good to see you. Team, um, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you are watching this on Instagram, you're watching me go live. G'day there, yo103. Thanks to you all for joining us. Uh, and if you are listening to this, you're listening on this. Uh, so if you're watching on Instagram and need to drop out or go have fun or go watch The Bachelor or anything like that, don't worry. We're recording the audio and I'll have it up on my podcast, Coffee and a Case Note. I'm going to have a cheeky whiskey. Christine, I'm doing well. I hope you are too. Um, as we go through this evening, uh, what I'm going to ask as a favor from you is... Oh, g'day, Reed Work Hustle. G'day, Samala Bell and Chickums. G'day, Solve Who. Good to see you all. Um, g'day, Bron M. Oh, this is very, very kind. Everyone's coming in. Um, what I'm going to ask, because the atmosphere... G'day, Nawira. Uh, what I'm going to ask, because the atmosphere is going to be quite casual tonight, is from time to time, uh, if you could let me know what you're drinking. G'day, James. I'd be interested to know... Uh, I don't know if you're having a cup of green tea or if you've got a soda stream and you're mixing it with lime cordial. Um, I'm having a cheeky, reasonable single malted whiskey um, as we work through a chat about corporate oppression. So sorry, let's just round off that housekeeping. Housekeeping is, I'd like to know what you're drinking. This is a very generous pour and I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not that sorry, but in any case. Uh I'd like to know what you're drinking, housekeeping one, housekeeping two, we're recording this on the podcast, coffee and a case note, so if you've got to drop off, that's fine, uh, housekeeping three, that's right, Bron, uh, I've got to rep the rep the new firm, Chamberlain's, we're with you, guys, okay, uh, important stuff, uh, and the final bit of housekeeping is... Um, the speech is divided up into three different parts. And part one, g'day, Lawrence. Keeping up with Kristen is having a black tea on a wild night. Um, Bron's got work-branded masks, uh, which is also good news. Guys, one of the tip- things that have typified these speeches is uh, me getting scatterbrained because everyone's saying interesting things in the comments. So I'm going to have to ask you to forgive me for that. G'day, Alicia. Welcome to the session. Um, hang on, what's that bottle, says Super Lawyer. Um, yeah, so the work branded stuff, again, while we're just talking trash at the start, there's one that's like this and there's one that's like this. And I think this is the cyclist's one, you know, the sort of cyclist one where I think you use your teeth to teeth it out. And then one of them has the carabiner at the top that I think you put on the side of a backpack. And apparently um, 
That's that. Now, guys, Lawrence can't hear the audio. So if you can't hear the audio, can you give me a thumbs down just in the comments and I'll reboot. And if you can hear me, then we'll blame Lawrence for not listening hard enough. I'm not seeing thumbs downs. So we're going to get started. Team, hello. Today's talk is divided up into three uh, sections. Uh, Section one is we're going to talk about the law. And we're going to dive into section 232 and 233 and a few, um, Lawrence still can't hear, Lawrence, I'm just going to have to pass the buck and say it's your fault, not mine. I'm so sorry to do it to you. Everyone else can hear. Um, (laughs) um, Maybe drop out and come back, mate. We love having you here and you leave great comments. So let's do that. Let's continue. Um. Uh, so we're going to talk about the law in section one. That's going to be about section 232 and section 233 of the Corporations Act, how that operates. And some <laughs> Lawrence is saying very funny things. He's saying the audio is oppressive. Lawrence, stop making me laugh. So section one is going to be about the law. Section two is going to be some practical examples um, that are litigated cases. So decisions that the court have made and... <laughs> Um, hopefully, as we learn about those decisions, we're going to reach an understanding about um, what these cases look like when the rubber hits the road. And then the third part of the talk are going to be some practical suggestions, some, th- some things that you're going to be able to look out in your practice um, that is uh, going to hopefully be of assistance to you. Um, Lawrence is in pain in the comments here with the volume not going up. Um, Lawrence, I think I will oppress you as you are in the minority, if you'll forgive me. Oh, no, now you've fixed it. Great. I suspect Lawrence turned it off and turned it back on again. So with that rambling intro, let's get into it. Why are we learning about corporate oppression? Why does it matter? Who cares? A whole number of reasons. Hello there, Jala Photography. But one of the fundamental ones is that the outcome of an oppression suit can endanger the very existence of a company. So if you act for a corporation, your client might literally not exist as the outcome of an oppression suit. Or similarly, if you're acting for a member or a shareholder um, of a corporation, that entity that your client owns part of might not exist. G'day, Chasely Kern. Good to see you. Um, If the oppression suit proceeds in a certain way. And because a company has an almost unlimited range of things it can do, it can basically do every single thing that a natural person can do. What that means is that it can engage in an almost unlimited amount of conduct that could be oppressive as well. And so it's important for you when you're trying to understand what your corporate clients are doing or what your corporations might do. Um, (laughs) I shouldn't read these comments. Lawrence, spot on. I say an understanding of the law of corporate oppression is important. And so let's get into that first section. Let's get into the first part of the talk where we're talking about the crunchy bits. We're talking about the law. I think I deserve a sip of whiskey for making it through that. It has been said that corporate oppression is the most effective minority shareholder remedy there is. G'day, SJ Barnett. Um, This is the office you know well when we chat. So it's been said that it's the most effective minority shareholder remedy there is. 
And while that is arguably true, one of the things I want to ram home for you tonight is that corporate oppression is not merely the realm of a minority shareholder. Indeed, um, it can be a minority that brings an oppression suit. It can be a majority. It can be an entirety. So whether it's 1%, 49%, 50%, 51%, 74%, 75%, 99%, 100%, 100%, whatever proportion the shareholding is, there is grounds to bring an oppression suit. So we often say, oh yeah, minority oppression, corporate oppression, that's minority stuff. Well, yes, because it can be, but no, in that it is not restricted to merely minorities. And what oppression concerns is commercial unfairness, quote, quote. And that's a phrase that, as you hear it said, uh, you know is a little bit loose and a little bit fuzzy. And um, it is a phrase we're going to understand better and better. And there's a question here from Palm Triertelmap. And what uh, Palm Triertelmap is asking is, have there been cases where um, corporate oppression has been engaged in deliberately? The short answer is yes. The longer answer is that's actually the majority of the cases we find. So what we're going to find is that it's quite deliberate conduct of our oppressors, if we put it that way loosely, that leads to a successful oppression suit. Um, guys, that's another good housekeeping point. I love getting questions. Um, and the best way to ask them to bring them to my attention is to touch the little question mark button, the little Riddler button down the bottom there. And that lets me broadcast the question up on the screen. So if you do have questions, ask them. Palm trail map, you're very, very welcome. Okay. So as I might've mentioned earlier, when we're talking about corporate oppression, we're talking about two sections of the Corporations Act. We are talking about section 232 and we are talking about section 233. Now section 232 is what we might think of as our jurisdictional section. Um, the uh, jurisdictional section 232 says essentially, if a company has engaged in commercially unfair conduct, then the court may make 233 orders. Okay, so I just want to ground that in your head. We're going to roll through this again and again, and it's going to make sense, I promise. 232 says, if there's been commercial unfairness, the court can make a 233 order. Then 233 is a list of orders that the court can make. And we're going to look at these two sections now. So if we dive into section 232, and don't worry, we're not going to read it verbatim what we find is a couple of things I'd like to bring to your attention. The court may make an order if the Section 232 commercial unfairness test is made. And um, when I say commercial unfairness, I'm speaking loosely because the section itself says that if the conduct of a com company's affairs, an actual or proposed act or omission or a resolution is contrary to the interests of members as a whole, or oppressive to, unfairly prejudicial to, unfairly discriminatory against a member or members, whether in that capacity or any other capacity. So we're talking about things that are contrary to the interests of members. We're talking about unfair prejudice or oppression. And there's this loose word, loose phrase we use called commercial unfairness. And so if I can ask you to take just at face value that section 232 says something like, if there's commercial unfairness, you can make a 233 order. We're going to dive into what that means in a little bit more depth now. 
So the first thing I'd like to bring to your attention about uh, Section 232 is the discretionary element. The court may make a 233 order if there is commercial unfairness found. So put another way, even if a plaintiff is successful in proving their or its or her or his claim, which is to say proving that there has been this commercially unfair conduct, the court nonetheless retains a discretion to say, well, uh, that conduct may have indeed occurred, but the court retains a discretion as to whether or not an order will be made. And we're going to dive into those circumstances later. Second thing I want to bring to your attention in relation to Section 232, and I think it's Section 233, Hugh, with the Aussie lawyer joining us down the bottom. Hugh, lovely to see you as always. That there are no limitations placed on when a, an action might have occurred. So corporate oppression might relate to past conduct, something that has happened. It may relate to present conduct, things that are ongoing right now. Or it may even relate to future conduct, things that are going to happen down the track that are contemplated. And so there is a very broad arena <laughs> in which a potential corporate oppressor can conduct themselves. So as we learned before, because a company can do more or less anything a natural person can do, it can engage in a huge range of conduct and the conduct that might be commercially unfair, there's a huge range of that as well, that range being so huge that it might be past, present, future. Okay, and then finally, I want to reiterate from 232, uh, a point I made before. G'day, Mel, great to have you in the house. Um, I'm going to reiterate this point and then come to the question that's been asked at the bottom here, is that conduct can be oppressive if it is unfairly prejudicial, contrary to the interests of, etc., a very small minority, a large minority, 50-50, majority, entirety. So while it's sometimes thought of as a minority remedy, um, it is not merely a minority remedy. And I'll come to this question now. We have a question from Palm Trail Map. Oh, great question. So the question is, so there's no limitation period. So a lot of you will know that in relation to a great many um causes of action, there's a six-year limitation period, different for defamation, different for some equitable claims, um, but um, six years is a really good working start, and six years does indeed apply to corporate oppression. So sorry, that's a really good qualification to raise, which I agree with and accept that the six-year limitation does indeed apply to a corporate oppression claim. So let's turn to section 233. Um, section 233 is, you may recall, the section that sets out all the various orders the court can make um, if the court is satisfied that it wants to exercise its 232 discretion because it is found there is going to be commercial because it is found there has been commercially unfair conduct. Now, these sorts of orders can be a huge range of things. We can be amending the company's constitution. We can be uh, appointing a receiver manager. We can be doing all sorts of things. We can be requiring a certain person to do a specified act. Um, a huge palette of remedies uh, that can be drawn. But what we find in practice is that, in essence, the possible 233 orders are either going to be a share sale, where one shareholder is going to be ordered to sell their shares to another at a fair value, not a market value, at a fair value, 
or in the alternative to a share sale at fair value, there's going to be a wind up. Does that make sense? So while 233, huge number of options as to the sort of orders that can be made, um, what we find in practice is it's share sale versus wind up. Okay. Um, so let's try to pick this apart a little bit more as we deal with, look, what is the law relating to corporate oppression? Uh, I'm going to take you to a judgment of Justice Austin in a decision called Tamanovich uh, in 2010. And uh, what his honour said uh, in a decision that was subsequently upheld in relation to this element on appeal, or perhaps more specifically, it went through unchallenged and uh, the Court of Appeal saw fit not to comment on it, um, was uh, a number of things. And so his honour went through and explained that the purpose of any Section 233 relief the reason that a court would use any of those remedies we've spoken about is to terminate the oppression, is to end the commercially unfair conduct. And so if we think about what that means, what that means is the court is only going to make a section 233 order if at the time it is being asked, there is commercially unfair conduct for it to cure. And what we're going to find as we progress to a decision called Munsterman and Rayward a little later is that Justice Stevenson had some interesting comments about timing. And so if you want to get, if you want to hear some interesting stuff about the making of Section 233 orders, just hold under your hats for what Justice Stevenson has to say. And then what Justice Hammerschlag had to say in 2018, and then what the Court of Appeal had to say in 2019 about what Justice Hammerschlag said in 2018. So it's exciting stuff. Um, so uh, what Justice Austin said further in that decision of Tamanovich was that the non-fulfillment of expectations, even legitimate ones, uh, can self-establish oppression, and that judges hearing an oppression suit must not remain in their ivory tower. And that's a citation from an earlier judgment of Justice Young called Fexuto, but in not remaining in their ivory tower, what is required of the court when hearing an oppression suit is to take what might be referred to as a real-world approach. G'day, Melab. G'day, Alex. Good to see you guys. Um, the court must be alive to the real, genuine, commercial uh, groundwork going on rather than just um, remaining distant and aloof from the facts. They must properly engage. So if we turn to the 2017 decision of Munsterman and Rayward, what Justice Stevenson did there was list some more uh, bullet points <laughs> for speaking uh, with respect, but in a very loose way. He listed some more elements um, that are relevant to the law of corporate oppression. We're not going to go through, through it all, but um, there are a couple that I'd like to pick out and bring to your attention, if I may. Now, when the court is hearing an oppression suit, its task is to consider whether on the balance of probabilities... So it's that civil test, the civil standard. The objective bystander, that is our person looking on, would be satisfied that the affairs of the company were being conducted unfairly. Balance of probabilities, commercial bystander, who's objective, and uh, the unfair conduct of the company. Okay. Uh, now, the conduct of a company's affairs can be oppressive, notwithstanding the fact it doesn't breach any other laws. So a director might say, hey, look, I'm behaving in a manner consistent with my director's duties, both fiduciary and uh, pursuant to the legislation, so I'm not being oppressive. And the response to that is, it is no answer 
to a, an oppression suit to say, I complied with my other duties. If you complied with your other duties, but your conduct was nonetheless commercially unfair, nonetheless it was oppressive, then um, you have engaged in commercially unfair conduct and the oppression can be made out. And then do you remember I planted the seed earlier that we were going to talk about timing? Get ready to have your mind blown. Um, gosh, that whiskey's going down easily. Get ready to have your mind blown because if you remember, the purpose of a 233 order is to cure the 232 oppression, right? The 232 commercial unfairness, I should say. And so the timing question is this. The question of was the thing or is the thing commercially unfair? Well, the answer to that question is, is or was it unfair on the day proceedings were commenced? So if we commence proceedings tomorrow, 10 September, we file our document and we go to hearing 10 September 2023, then the question for the court is, was the conduct, g'day Claire, good to see you, was the conduct commercially unfair on 10 September 2020? That's the 232 question. And then the 233 question, because remember, if we're making a 233 order, the purpose of that order is to cure the 232 unfairness. So the question of should we make a 233 order, that is answered on 10 September 2023. So we're going to see an example a little bit later, get excited, um, of a case where the court said, oh, yes, that conduct was commercially unfair, but there's no current uh, damage being done. There's nothing oppressive happening now, so we're not going to make a 233 order because there is no oppression to be cured, right? That's going to make more sense to you as we go on, but essentially that timing test, is it commercially unfair? You answer that question on the day preceding start. What orders should we make? We answer that on the very last day at the hearing of the matter, the final hearing. And if we're estimating the time, these might take somewhere between um, 24 and 48 months, 24 and 60 months maybe. So it can be quite a significant period when litigation like this goes on. Okay, that is all I wanted to say about the law of corporate oppression before getting into some examples. So now that we've done the hard bits, and frankly, I found that very hard, and I'm not confident I did a very good job. So if you've got more questions about that, ask them, and that's fine. But as we said before, this speech, three se- this chat is three sections tonight. Firstly, law. Secondly, litigated examples. Thirdly, some practical suggestions. G'day, Emma. Good to see you, and thanks for shouting out the live earlier today. And so that brings to a conclusion our discussion about the law. Now, anyone who heard that brings to a conclusion just then and thought, oh no, what did I miss? Don't worry. As I said, we are recording right now. So um, this uh, audio is all going up on the podcast. The podcast is Coffee and a Case Note. G'day, Sharvi. Good to see you. I've got a question. Let's see what's going on. I've got two questions. Oh, I'm so sorry. MJW83. So the orders are just injunctive and not for damages for past oppressive conduct. MJW, that's a really good question. The answer to that is no, the orders are not just injunctive, though they can be. And so um, um, when you say injunctive, I presume you mean uh, injunctive in an interlocutory sense, so immediate and preventative. 
In fact, no, not necessarily. That's an unfair assumption. I just injunctive and not necessarily for damages. Um, th- there is a possibility for the order of payments, MJW83, but as I should have made clear to you earlier, um, what is vastly more likely is the court is basically, basically going to say, look, should we do a share sale or should we wind it up? And so to the extent that the finances need adjusting, the valuation of the shares in a share sale are going to be shares sold at fair value, but for the um, but for the oppressive conduct. So if the fair value of the shares is zero, and the reason it's zero is because of my oppressive conduct, then you get the fair value of the shares, uh, but for my oppressive conduct. And so there's a valuation exercise that can get really complex. Um, so I hope that answers your question. And if it doesn't, uh, uh, that's because I'm misinterpreting it and it's my fault and I apologize. Thank you for that excellent question. Uh, there was another excellent question. Oh, g'day, who, Myra, good to see you. Uh, for some reason, I can't touch wave. Uh, okay, Jay Bridget asks a question. What happens if conduct, for example, a transaction is oppressive for a minority shoulder, but in the... But in the... But in the, I presume the rest of this says, but in the best interest of the company as a whole, but I can't see it. Um, well, that's a really good question. If it is commercially unfair, then the court has a discretion to make a 233 order. And if it is commercially unfair to some minority, but is for the best interests of members as a whole, then the court will have a discretion to... Sorry, Jay Bridget's clarifying. Best interest of shareholders as a whole. If it's in the best interest of shareholders as a whole, then corporate oppression falls away. There's going to be no claim. It's a shareholder remedy at its heart. And so if uh, if everything's fine from the shareholder's perspective, then there's nothing to worry about from the corporate oppression perspective. I hope that makes sense. Humara, good to see you. I'm going to try to wave to you again by touching this wave thing. Good to see you. Um, team, I'm loving these questions. I must say, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to have your time. I know most of you should be watching The Bachelor, um, but I'm grateful that you are choosing to spend your time here. All right. Um, if that's it for the questions for this phase, but I want you to feel very welcome to ask them. What I'd be interested to hear is what you're drinking. So um, I'm having a reasonable, very drinkable single malt from a reasonably large brand of whiskey that is that, that, going down very smoothly indeed. Um, we've got a black tea going on. And Jay Bridget's clarifying. Oh, Sam's joining us. Sam, lovely to have your company. Sorry, Jay Bridget's clarifying is a very good question. Sam's saying the best interest of, perhaps Sam's saying the best interest of a majority of shareholders versus the best interest of a minority. If I'm right about that, Jay Bridget, can you just tick or cross me in the bottom? Are you saying 100% of shareholders or are you saying, let's say 75 versus 25? Um, JD and Coke for MJW, awesome. Sam Law, you're welcome. You need to go follow Sam Law, anyone who's interested, and check out his podcast, which is great. We've got a lot of black tea happening tonight. It's good. Tea tea and a case note, Emma, good to see. So I'm going to start going into some examples, team. Because of all your excellent questions and how much I enjoy answering them, I've allowed us to get behind, and I apologize for that. Okay. Let's get to our first case. Um, oh, Jay Bridget's continuing his very good questions. So this clarification here is 75 versus 25. And if I can just allude back to Jay Bridget's earlier question is, and I'll paraphrase a bit and correct me if I'm wrong, Jay Bridget, essentially you're saying is 
what if a transaction is in the best interest of 75% of the company and in the worst interest of 25%? Um, does an oppression claim still stand because so many shareholders have benefited this 75 and only a few have lost? Well, that's classic corporate oppression. Yes, an oppression suit stands there for the minority if there's been commercial unfairness in reaching that transaction. Hope that makes sense. We've got Alana Garcia. Alana, great to see you. We've got Dilk. Thanks. Great to see you, Dilk. Great to see you guys. It's good fun. Okay, let us get to our first case. Um, this is the case of Shanahan and Jatese, 2018. We're going to go with the first instance decision. This was upheld on appeal in 2019. Um, we've got a company. What it does is operate an eye hospital, and it does that in Canberra. And the company has shareholders, each of whom are the eye surgeons who work at the eye hospital. And the setup is reasonably straightforward. The hospital uh, engages the eye surgeons to go and uh, cut people's eyes open and put them back together again, which is not a particularly pleasant thought. But in any case, patients pay for that. Uh, that money goes into the company. And, oh, Hannah's here. Hello, Hannah. And that money is then distributed back to the shareholders in the form of, speaking loosely, dividends, right? So we've got surgeons doing work, money goes into the company, company pays money back out to those same surgeons because they are paid in their capacity as shareholders in what we're going to call dividends, speaking loosely. Now, this rolls along for a while quite well until a minority of the eye surgeons retire and head off to the golf course. They're off on the golf course and they remain shareholders and they continue to take dividends. Oh, good day, Zubaya Bharti. Good to see you. And so as you might imagine, our majority who continue to exert themselves and make money to the company are just watching some of that money head off to the golf course to the retired surgeons and are a little bit disappointed. And so what our working majority do is they appoint some directors that are sympathetic to their uh, view of the world. What those directors do is a number of things. Um, one of those things is prevent the appointment of new surgeons and while the company is not insolvent and not in danger of becoming insolvent, there is a settled view that if there was to be a new surgeon appointed, it would really bring the company back up to a good operating level, get things moving properly. And the second thing that is done is the company is placed into VA by these majority directors, notwithstanding the fact it is not insolvent and notwithstanding the fact it is not likely to become insolvent in future insolvency Insolvency Insights. If you want some insights into insolvency, you know what account to go to there. Um, welcome, Dominic. Uh, sorry, I was meant to wave to you. Welcome, Dominic. Good to see you. And so the court is then asked um, about Section 232 and Section 233. And what our golf course minority say is they say, look, the uh, stymieing of the appointment of a new surgeon and the placement into VA in a involuntary administration, VA insolvency insight, providing an insolvency insight, um, placement of the company into voluntary administration when it is solvent is and was oppressive. I withdraw oppressive, is or was commercially unfair in the section 232 sense. What I have not told you is between the time of commencing the proceedings and final hearing, there was a mediation. At that mediation, our golf course directors agreed to sell their shares to the majority. And they did, and they got a genuine value. They got about $1.7 million for their shares. 
And so they were no longer shareholders, but they continued to roll on with their oppression suit. And so let's flash back to the future, back to the final hearing of the matter. Because remember, the court has said 232, tick, yes, it is commercially unfair. So the court then has a discretion to say, "Mm, okay, are we going to make one of these orders? And you'll recall that the orders that might be made, generally speaking, are, is there going to be a share sale? Is there going to be a wind-up? And what the court does is engage in a valuation exercise. And what the court says is, this $1.7 million that you received on account of your shares at this mediation, part after the start and before the end of the litigation, was in fact a windfall. You received a higher value for your shares than the fair value of them. And what that means is that you're not actually suffering as a result of that commercially unfair conduct which means that we're not going to make any 233 orders because there is no commercial unfairness for those orders to cure. And so we find ourselves in this position where the minority has proved commercial unfairness. They've got up on that um, 232 point, 100% Hannah, but what they have failed to do is to move the court to make those 233 orders uh, in relation to the oppression that they say they have suffered. So then there's a dispute about costs. And what our golf course director says is, hey, we won on the overwhelming point. This case was all about, was there commercially unfair conduct? We proved there was. We should get our legal costs. What the court said, what the court found was, no, that's wrong. What this was, was an application for 233 orders. You didn't get them, you lost, and costs follow the event. And so... Um, what I say is that the decision of Shanahan and Jatese is a really good um, illustration of the fact that the court will ask when, sorry, of timing about when uh, proceedings are commenced, being the section 232 time, and when proceedings are concluded, being the section 233 time. So here, 232, yep, that was fine. 233, the orders were not made. We are not looking as good for our early mark as I had hoped. Hugh Weatherall, hello there, and thanks for joining us. Good to see you. Let's turn to the decision of Knight's Quest and Daiwa Can. Now, um, this decision relates to an Australian company that is a wine manufacturer, and it makes wine specifically for the uh, for the can market. It makes wine designed to be canned. Thank you, Hannah. And what's interesting is that in 2012, there's a transaction whereby 60% of the Australian wine manufacturer's shares are sold to a Japanese can manufacturing company. And so, as you might imagine, there could be some synergies there for the can manufacturing competencies to be used to benefit the wine manufacturing competencies of the Australian company. Now, relevantly, this Japanese parent company... Oh, g'day, Jarek. Great to see you. Um, relevantly, this Japanese now majority shareholder of the Australian company uh, is also the parent company of a Japanese subsidiary that is itself a winemaker. And interestingly enough, this Japanese subsidiary winemaker starts to compete with the Australian winemaking company and they between themselves get into some spats. And those spats relate to things like, oh, g'day, it's Cherise, g'day, Jamil. Great to see you guys. Thanks for joining us. 
And these spats relate to things like licensing of patents relating to can manufacture and all this sort of stuff. And in, in short, the Australian wine producer doesn't get the sort of numbers that everyone had hoped for and things don't go particularly well. And what the minority shareholder in the Australian uh, wine producing company does is commence oppression proceedings against the Japanese parent company and says, um, hey, um, the uh, spat, the competition between um, the Australian company and the Japanese subsidiary wine producer is oppressive. Well, first threshold to get past is can you sue a shareholder? Because remember, the Japanese company, it's not a director and it's not the company. And so the question is, can you sue a shareholder for corporate oppression? And the answer to that was yes. Uh, But in this case, what was found was that oppression was not made out and the uh, reasonably straightforward... Oh, g'day, Brendan. Thanks for joining in. Very, very kind of you and good to see you. The reason for that was because, in short, in 2012, everyone knew the score. Everyone was um, across the fact that the Japanese subsidiary was a wine manufacturer, our Australian company was a wine manufacturer, and there were plans in place to attempt to work around that. Um, so notwithstanding the fact that <coughs> the... Japanese shareholder could be the subject of oppression proceedings. Um, Those proceedings were not, in fact, successful and the oppression was not made out. Okay, a bit of housekeeping team for anyone who's just joined in. I'm recording. That is a microphone you can see in the foreground there. So if you missed anything or if you need to step out, um, that's fine. I I, I won't be too hurt. (laughs) I'll be recording the audio for you on the podcast. The podcast is called Coffee and a Case Note, so you can catch up there if you are so inclined. Secondly, if you want to ask questions, you can go push the Riddler button down the bottom, and then I get a little highlight at this end that I know there's a question there, and that's good because sometimes when I'm following these comments, I start laughing because very funny and witty things are said. Uh, Finally, the speech is in three sections. Speech, this talk, this chat, this hangout is in three sections. G'day, Green Tea Luda. Good to see you. Um, And the first section was law. We went through crunchy nuts and bolts. Second section we're right in the middle of now as we're going through uh, practical litigated examples of times when corporate oppression has been relevant. And we're going to conclude with just a couple of quick practical suggestions for things you can do in your practice to deal with this stuff. (coughs) Okay. We're going to go to a 2015 decision of the Supreme Court of Victoria called Falkingham and Peninsula Kingswood Country Golf Club. We've got a tale of two golf clubs here. Apparently 2015 was not a great time to own a golf club and they were both in financial difficulty. And a merger uh, is contemplated and they go through with it. The nature of the merger is that this golf club is going to sell its golf course, get the money in, bring the money into a newly merged entity. Part of the, mer- oh, sorry, and that newly merged entity will enjoy all the money that's come in from the sale of this golf course here. And that sale will then ensure the financial security of the newly merged entity. Now, one of the nuts or bolts of the merger is that our existing golf club has a power in its constitution for the directors to admit new members. 
And so the directors say, well, we've got a power to do this, so we'll admit the new members now. Now, one member of this golf club uh, complains and lodges oppression proceedings on the basis that the merger transaction, g'day, Eager Ellen, great to see you, on the basis that the merger transaction was commercially unfair and so Section 233 orders ought to be made with essentially the effect of unravelling the merger. Now, what the court says is the directors did have the power to admit new members into the corporation from this other corporation, but the reason those powers were granted were not necessarily for the um, engaging in of a merger. The powers were granted for other reasons. And so what that meant was that the directors used the powers for reasons other than the reasons they were granted. And what that meant was that they had engaged in conduct that was commercially unfair. If we're, speaking, we're using that phrase loosely, commercially unfair in the Section 232 sense. And so the court then had a discretion. Are we going to make a Section 233 order? The short answer was no. And the reason for that was the delay that the plaintiffs had engaged in in bringing the claim. And if we read between the lines of this judgment to an extent, and I say this with the greatest of respect, there is some complexity to this merger and the idea of unravelling it because of the disappointment of one member about the way new members were admitted to the newly merged club. Um, there was a bit of real-worldness, I say with the greatest of respect, um, to this outcome, which strikes me as the uh, commercially appropriate outcome and um, a, a very appropriate exercise of the court's discretion in this area. So it was okay. The merger was fine. <laughs> oh, and as a bit of an end note, um, we were dealing with the appeal decision, and as part of the appeal, um, our complaining member uh, had sought to join the purchaser of the golf course. Remember, one of the clubs was selling its golf course. And essentially, they were trying to join that purchaser to unravel that transaction as well. Um, and um, I'm getting a text from a very good friend that I will need to reply to after this. Um, and it looks like important news. So sorry for being distracted for a moment. Um, I Yes, so on the appeal, um, what was found was that... Um, there was no leave granted to join the purchaser of that golf course. So um, let's turn to our next decision. Ooh, this is a fairly boring one, but it's useful. Uh, how much time have we got? 8.41. I was going to try to give you guys an early mark. Let's, let's do this one, but I'll keep trying to gun for an early mark for you. As I say, if you've got questions, please push the Riddler button, the question mark button down the bottom, um, and I should be here to answer them. Uh, if you're having a sip of something, uh, please let me know. Uh, and palm tree, little map, uh, speculating down the bottom. I'm not going to speculate with you, but I think that's an interesting point you raise. So, team, let's turn to the Queensland Court of Appeal in 2018. This is a decision called Asia Pacific Joint Mining and Always, always with a double L, ways, one word. What this is, is a reasonably complex set of facts that I'm not going to dive into with a number of mining entities um, owned by some overseas, much larger mining entities that don't get along. There is a first instance decision where an oppression suit is brought uh, and it succeeds. And the court says 232, 
tick, there is commercial unfairness. 233, tick, the order we're going to make is a wind-up. The defendant appeals. What the defendant says is, yes, okay, we accept 232 commercial unfairness. (coughs) We're not going to appeal that, but we appeal the wind-up. And what we say is, the more appropriate outcome is that a share sale should have been ordered and not a wind-up. And what they do is they point to authorities and say, a wind-up is a last resort. And what the court has to examine is, is it indeed right that a wind-up is a last resort? It is the last possible thing that the court can do and it must exhaust all other possibilities in finding relief? Or is it merely an extreme step? And what the court finds in short is the latter. So notwithstanding the fact that on a wind-up you've got employees that you've got to worry about, you've got shareholders you've got to worry about, you've got third-party relationships and supply chains and and you know business certainty and all this sort of stuff you've got to worry about, um, and that makes people say things like a wind-up is a last resort. But what in fact the court says is that that again I'm summarising broadly a little bit, but that 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 language is quite broad, and that in fact a wind-up is not a last resort; it is merely an extreme step. And so the court had to ask itself, well, is this the right matter to take that extreme step or is a share sale appropriate? And here there were challenges uh, in relation to the share sale. Now, one of the challenges was that the company among its assets was a chosen action um, for a $33 million breach of contract claim that was unlitigated. And so it was a bit of an assertion of, hey, we've got a claim worth $33 million bucks. And the question is, how do you value that? That's an interesting question. Um, Further, it is not clear that the uh, appellant is going to have enough money uh, to pay if a share sale is ordered, because if a share sale is ordered, it's going to be in the quantum of tens of millions of dollars. Um, And then thirdly, there are some serious big players who are standing behind the appellant who have it within their power to stand behind um, the appellant and perhaps guarantee its obligations pursuant to a buyout order, and they do not do that. And so what the court says is, um, wind-up is an extreme step. It is not an actual last resort, but this is a case where a wind-up is appropriate and a share sale is not appropriate for the reasons I hopefully just made clear. Okay, let's do two more decisions. We'll stay in Queensland uh, and hang on to our sanity, perhaps. This is a decision called Hunter and Organic and Natural 2013 Queensland Court of Appeal. Uh, Team, we've got a trading entity. Trading entity starts rolling along quite well. Uh, It has five shareholders. Those five shareholders, we can break down into three sort of groups. We go this husband and wife group, as it were, this husband and wife group, and we'll call this bloke a group as well. Five shareholders. And each group can appoint a director. And so we've got our trading company, five shareholders, three groups. Whiskey or whiskey? I'm not sure if it's got an E. No, no E. So if there's no E in the whiskey, that means it's Scottish. And if there is an E, it means it's Irish. Sorry, Hannah. It's it's the other, whatever the whatever that is, it's the other kind of drink I'm drinking. A whiskey with no E. So it's Scotch. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, 
a restructure is undertaken. And the restructure is undertaken for the reasons most are for asset protection and for tax minimization. The nature of that restructure is that our trading entity assigns all of its know-how and IP into a, to a trustee of a unit trust. And the trustee of the unit trust, the unit holders of that trust are three family discretionary trustees. And the beneficiaries of those various trusts are our family groups. Oh, I can't do it with that hand. Our family groups. So our five shareholders up here, they sort of transform into beneficiaries down here because our trading entity pays license fees to the unit trust. The unit trust then distributes to the unit holding family trusts. And then each of these five take money from the family trusts. That makes sense? Now we get to the thrust of it. Brain, legal, thumbs, whiskey. I agree with legal brain, thumbs, whiskey and scotch, thumbs, whiskey. Yes, I'm with you all. The thrust is that the plaintiff's entitlement to distribution from these family trusts, remember, which after the restructure is the only way you can get money out of this structure, is dependent on her remaining married to her husband. Uh, and they uh, separate. So what she says is, well, I'm still a shareholder in this thing, this trading entity. Um, the fact I'm separating down here means I've now got no avenue for getting money out of this enterprise. I have been oppressed. And so I ought to have Section 233 relief. And what the court says is no. The reason the court says no is because um, oppression relates to conduct. And because the wife signed off and took advice and agreed with the restructure and the unit trustee and the family discretionary trust and all this sort of stuff, um, she wasn't able to point to any conduct. There was no event, there was no thing that was done that she was able to say that was oppressive. And what we learn in this case is that corporate oppression is about conduct, it's not about outcomes. And so while we might have some sympathy with the plaintiff about the fact she owns shares in a company that is now essentially worth nothing because it has signed all its stuff over to the unit trust. Um, the fact is corporate oppression is not the arena for her to recover. And indeed, there is a comment made in the judgment that she would still have her rights pursuant to family law, which we can presume that she pursued. Now, let's go super quick through our last one. because that's fun to do. This is a decision uh, called Munsterman and Raywood that I referred to earlier, 2017, New South Wales Supreme Court. we got a company that's carrying on business in Queensland. It has two directors. It has two shareholders. Sam's referring to my lighting ring. Are you guys ready? You know those influencer lights? So it's on now, off now. On now, off now, on now. Okay, I could do that all night. Um, Samiha, thanks for joining us. Um, we've got this entity in Queensland, two directors, two shareholders. The directors and shareholders are the same people. They're 50-50 shareholders. Now, um, what happens is that our shareholder who lives in Sydney, so is not part of the day-to-day -day management of the company, makes an offer to sell his shares that the Queensland managing director, who's on the tools day to day, does not accept. And I say, I've got two questions. Let's get to them. Oh, gosh. Have I oh, no, sorry. I've got one question. Jala Fatog. So the facts around the commercial conduct is 
key, says Jala for Tog. Yes, is the short point. Um, so Jala asks here, um, yeah, so the facts around the commercial conduct is key. Yes, yes, I agree with that. Um, Jala, the, the ability for a plaintiff to show <coughs> what has actually been done or is going on or will happen, that's fundamental uh, to proving any oppression claim and fundamental to moving the court to make any orders for relief. I think there was another question there that I missed. Did I miss it? No, that's not the one. What am I doing? There's another question here, isn't there? No, there's not. Well, that's fine. Good. All right, let's keep marching on. Okay. So we've got our um, Sydney director and shareholder who is not participating in the company. And we've got our Queensland director and shareholder who is. And our Sydney director and shareholder has attempted to sell his shares. And our Queensland director and shareholder has said no. So our Sydney director and shareholder starts doing some peculiar and concerning things. Um, he attempts to be reinstated as financial controller when there are employees already doing that role. And because of the Sydney director's ill health, he wouldn't be able to do it anyway. Uh, he issues an invoice for 16 grand uh, to the company for work the company didn't ask for and indeed which he didn't do. And he admits in cross-examination that the invoice was just a try-on at the expense of the company. Uh, he requires that all payments, including for minor items like staples, be approved at directors at minuted directors' meetings. He sends an all-staff email to the effect that the company doesn't have enough money to pay wages or super, when in fact that's wrong. Um, and generally, and this is something he accepts in cross-examination, he agrees that he holds the company at ransom to get what he wanted. And what you might be unsurprised to hear is that all of that conduct amounted to what we might call, using our loose term we've used a few times now, commercially unfair conduct. Okay. Team, the structure of tonight's talk, law, examples, practical suggestions. Um, we just finished the practical suggestions a bit. We've got a, sorry, finished the practical examples a bit. We've got a couple of suggestions to make. Um, what I should say is if you missed any of this, uh, it is up. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm recording it now. It'll be up in an hour or two on the podcast. G'day, Matto. Good to see you. It'll be up on the podcast, Coffee and a Case Note, probably in an hour or two. Um, so if you missed anything, that's fine. Just head back and I will have uploaded it then. Uh, other admin, I want to know what you're drinking. So I'm still, I'm, I'm polishing off some of this, which is going down well. Uh, we've got a lot of black tea going on. Oh, I'll pour myself a bit more of that actually before we close. So practical suggestions. Really, the short point is a shareholders agreement. And, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? Uh, 20 years ago. When's the best time to enter into a shareholders agreement? 20 years ago. When's the second best time to plant a tree? Today. When's the second best time to enter into a shareholders agreement? Today. If you have shareholders in dispute, the best, cheapest, quickest, and most effective way to deal with it is to get them to agree. Because if you can't get them to agree, then you litigate, and the cost uh, and risk to the company, frankly, of that litigation is something that is best avoided. And I've got all sorts of suggestions here for how your shareholders agreement should look, um, but I'm not going to be able to give you an early mark if we go through those. Um, basically, agree or litigate, and it's cheaper and better for your client, or if you are a commercial person, for you, it's cheaper or better if you agree. So um, those practical suggestions are very short. I can expand on them another time, or you're welcome to send me a note or something like that. 
but um, I got a bee in my bonnet about getting out of here before nine o'clock because I feel like I kept you too long in previous weeks. So I'm not going to do that. So team, that's it. Um, I'm really grateful for your company. Uh, I've been going live on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. for the last four weeks now, and I'm going to do it once more. Um, so next week, Wednesday at 8 p.m. on Instagram, I'd love to have your company. It's actually going to be a bit looser. I'm going to talk about this project I'm doing called Coffee in a Case Note, and I'm going to make some fairly in-depth comments about my method. So I'm on TikTok, LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, podcast. I, like I'm in a few different places and it's part of a reasonable set, reasonably settled strategy. And I sort of want, I'm just going to take you through all of that uh, and let people ask questions and that kind of thing. So it'll be a sort of chatting about lawyers using the internet to do marketing and branding sort of a chat because um, people ask for it. It's very flattering and look, I like being flattered as much as anyone. So that's my plan. Team, if you've got questions right now is the time because I'm going to have a sip of whiskey and then get out of here. I'm really grateful for your time. Today we discussed corporate oppression and what I hope we learned when we talked about the law, our first phase, was about section 232 and 233. And I hope what we found there is that section 232 is our jurisdictional section where we say if there's commercial unfairness, that term we use loosely, then the court can, (coughs) may make a 233 order. And I hope what we learned about section 233 was that there's a whole range of orders that can be made, but essentially it's either a share sale or a wind-up. Then when we talk through those examples, I hope we got a sense of how that fairly crunchy law looks when the rubber hits the road. And then I quickly made some suggestions at the end that at the heart of them were your options in the face of a shareholder dispute is to agree or litigate. Um, Team, um, oh Matt, it would be lovely to see you next week. That's awesome. I'm going to call it there. Molly, you've joined for about the last 25 or 30 seconds, but it's nonetheless lovely to have you. Um, I'm going to draw a line under that unless there are any questions for me. I'm going to have a sip of whiskey to give you... No, I'm going to have a sip of water and then a sip of whiskey. It's going to be exciting. Um, And then I'm going to close down the live. That was the water. That's the whiskey. Team, absolutely fantastic to have your company. Would love to see you again at 8 p.m. next week. Same time, same place. Hope you have a great week. If you want to do me a favor, I'd be super grateful if you could spread the word about these sessions. And if you don't feel like doing that, that's fine too. James, it's great to have your company. No worries that you were in and out. Much love to everyone. Thanks for your time. Talk soon. Cheers.